0: Primary Care Knowledge Boost, advanced clinical practitioners in primary care.
1: Hello and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Um, we haven't introduced ourselves
0: in a while when we've been saying hello and welcome. Uh, so, just so you know, I'm Dr. Sarah McDermott, I'm a Wigan based GP. And I'm Dr. Lisa Adams, um, I was a GP in Manchester until relatively recently, and now I am a public health trainee up in Scotland. Yeah, and today we're talking to um, Advanced Clinical Practitioner, Sam Howard. Yes, we were interested to hear what this role means and entails. Um, As with the other additional roles episodes, we go through questions about supervision, registration and training requirements. Yeah, we hope you enjoy. So would you mind giving a bit of an introduction about yourself and a little bit of a background about what you do? Thank you for inviting me. Uh, My name's
2: Sam Howard. Uh, I'm a nurse by background, and I currently work as um, an advanced nurse practitioner um, in a GP practice in Ramsbridge within Wigan. I started my career off many years ago as um, an admin apprentice in a, in the back office in a GP surgery. Mm and then became a healthcare assistant, had an apprenticeship as a healthcare assistant, and I only trained to be a nurse to be a practice nurse because I love primary care. Um, I love the opportunities that were available, how you could, you could really make an impact in people's health, and you could really not just help them get better, but actually prevent them from becoming unwell. And I've never seen any other discipline of medicine or nursing or care delivery where you have the opportunity to do that. Mm. Um, so it, it's still I still find it really interesting and I think the flip side is the downside if you do stop someone from becoming unwell you'll never know <laughs> yeah. but you inwardly you do inwardly yeah. you do you know
0: you've
1: you've done good yeah Oh well, that's a great introduction <laughs>
0: So today we are talking about advanced clinical practitioners um, and kind of how that fits in with the um, R's roles and where they sit in primary care. So we thought we'd start with a bit of a definition or a bit of a background. So what is an advanced clinical practitioner? So advanced practice
2: is is a level of practice. So an advanced clinical practitioner is a description of a clinician who's functioning at a certain level, if that makes sense. And I think that's the best way I can describe it because often people will say, what is an advanced clinical practitioner? Because we can have different backgrounds, you see. And historically, it's always been the nursing registrants that have undertaken that. And we've been around in general practice and in secondary care and other fields for years, but by different guises and different terminology. And it's only as we've kind of evolved as a, as a profession, that we've recognised it's a, as I said, it's a function, it's a level of practice. That other um, registered professionals are coming through more and more. And it's but we've really socialised that kind of care delivery. Mm. So we we work within four pillars of practice, four levels of advanced practice, which is clinical practice, which everyone's really familiar with. So that's us seeing patients Mm -hmm. um, in our routine life. But it also includes leadership and some management, Mm -hmm. um, research and education. So there's the three different pillars away from patient-facing contact that I think are often missed. And that's what makes advanced practice advanced practice, that it incorporates those four elements. So that differentiates us from a specialist so I, I was a specialist nurse for about 10 years and I specialized in respiratory. but I wasn't typically an advanced practitioner. I was a specialist nurse, so I had a subject that I knew really in depth and I could um, answer any query from any clinician about that, but I wasn't necessarily following any leadership or management, and I wasn't undertaking research, particularly or delivering education as part of the role.. Yeah. And it often gets confused between a specialist nurse as I would in my background would be, and an advanced practitioner.
0: Yeah, gotcha. And can specialist nurses prescribe or do you have to become an advanced practitioner to then prescribe? So to become a non-medical prescriber, um, you
2: you just need to be a qualified and um, suitably trained and experienced registered healthcare professional. So from a nursing point of view, absolutely specialist nurses um, can prescribe. And I think I think it's an absolute must. But you also practice nurses, our general nurses, equally they too can prescribe. So it's your um, your specialism, which in, in, in this life, I suppose in our world, our specialism is general practice, that specialist background in its own right. Yeah. So it's a must for advanced practice. It's something that is an expectation that you've trained um, to an advanced level. You've completed a master's level or equivalent programme and that you, you can prescribe.
0: Fab. I thought it was just worth maybe making that differentiation for anyone who didn't know. And you've talked about nurses doing the advanced practice. What other healthcare professionals can become an advanced practitioner? So there's a handful of professionals that can go on to um, reach the advanced practice level. And I
2: think the most topical one at the moment would probably our first contact practitioner colleagues. So the five disciplines that fall under the first contact practitioners that we're quite used to now that are being more and more socialised in primary care under the R's roles. Um, not just unique to the R's roles, because we've got quite a few of our colleagues that are employed directly in practice too, but that's really accelerated their profile, I think, um, which in no particular order would be our pharmacy colleagues, paramedics, dietitians, occupational therapists and podiatrists. Yep. Um there's equally a midwifery he's covered as well. And I think that's I think that's everything.
1: Lovely. So um just to get that straight in my head as well, it's a level of practice and for for you at the moment it's gp-based is is it always gp-based so i guess what i'm getting at is would the expectation for someone who's come from a dietitian background doing advanced clinical practice be the same in terms of like patient facing contacts and things like that do you do you do the same you can do the same but i think that that's
2: the the future where we're aspiring to be um it's it's still almost in its infancy but that is absolutely as the the roadmap for dietitians isn't finished yet the gp yeah. roadmap so what is outlined which is easier to reference is the roadmap for first contact practitioners yeah. that's a really good example so, from a first contact practitioner, it clearly stipulates the difference of levels between uh, being a first contact practitioner and an advanced first contact practitioner. Are those words interchanged in, but the word advanced is in there? Mm-hmm. And what that means is that you are trained adequately enough so that not just that you can manage a patient, assess and manage but you can differentiate diagnoses. Right. So at that first point of contact, you can um, ascertain whether that is, what what is the diagnosis, what is causing that problem. So as you'd expect in a field, a particular field, so um, the first contact practitioners, typically for physiotherapists, let's say, back pain, they would be able to differentiate that if it wasn't just musculoskeletal and be able to signpost or act upon that information appropriately, Yeah, which would historically go back many, many years, would be solely the the job and the role and the remit of a GP. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
2: So it's about that, that function of diagnosing patients. The key word is undifferentiated.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that you've got that list of differential diagnoses that are huge in some cases. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. Lovely. Um, and then, can you talk us through how you became an advanced clinical practitioner? So I think I've mentioned previously that I started life um,
2: recording flu jabs many, many years ago. <laughs> um, so that's always been a bit of a bane of our lives, isn't it, since is the season. Um, so and as I've progressed through, um, I only, as I said, I only trained to be a nurse to be a practice nurse because it was something I'd never seen before, this fantastic opportunity. And after being a practice nurse for many years and also a specialist nurse, it's my interest around respiratory coincided with practice nursing because we mm. often... And we lead in, in respiratory most often in practices don't we or diabetes or both yep. that's our remit is long-term mm-hmm. conditions so I had a dual role that 50% of my life I was a specialist respiratory nurse so my remit was to um, diagnose differential causes of breathlessness and the generalism for the rest of my life was that I would deal with diabetes um, heart disease um, and health protection health promotions so vaccines and things mm. And after many years of waiting for prescriptions to be signed for me or a a decision to be made by a GP colleague, I became a non-medical prescriber so that I could complete that consultation myself and be completely autonomous and make that decision, stand by my decision and be judged by that decision so that all that remit and accountability was with me. And it it was kind of a natural progression from that that it kind of built to go on to then see other things. And I think it, it started with, Um, flu season and pressures and offering to see all the acute respiratory patients within Ah. practice because of my dual role I was well well and truly familiar with an exacerbating patient with a patient with um, a chest infection so it it started on that little
0: step forward and then it just um, developed and developed it makes sense you can see that like you said the natural progression of that role and how you've ended up here <laughs> um, and what
1: qualifications do people need to have before they train as an advanced clinical practitioner
2: it does vary from area to area and health education england are working with the advanced clinical practice faculty and um, to kind of standardize this because it's not a protected title and mm. for years you've got lots of clinicians out in practice called nurse practitioners and um, advanced anything and it's it, the terminal there's so much terminology that is quite vague and can be quite ambiguous mm-hmm. so it, there's much work being done presently to formalize that to give it more structure and historically the gold standard would be your nursing background for me so your nursing qualification and um, a clinical skills and examination qualification that would then lead into a non-medical prescribing qualification And you need to evidence that you can function at uh, level seven academia so that you've had experience writing at that level because a master's level is um, level seven writing. There's other different ways as well of getting in in there because yeah. it's a little bit ambiguous it does depend on the HCI that you link with but the, the plan will be that it will be solely level seven masters module completion or equivalent so you'll need to have a portfolio of evidence to prove that you function at that level of academia and at that level of practice so that you can then enter the advanced practice register which will be held by the faculty.
1: You mentioned an acronym there. Um, what was it? H-E-I, is it? Sorry, it's a h- Higher Education Institute. Oh, okay, yeah. I was going to take a stab at it, but I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> um, so the day job for you, what does it look like? I had quite a mixed bag,
2: really. My, the, the role I have in practice um, is very similar to a, a GP's role. It's modelled mm. on that, um, the rationale being that's part of the team, that's where the, the workforce was kind of needed that makes sense yeah. to kind of to pick up some of that workforce so i'll have multiple appointments throughout the day 15 minute appointments because that's a it's a really good gold standard at length of time to have that we definitely would need to advocate totally agree and um, which could be face-to-face and any kind of the remote models whichever the patient wants we're completely led by the patient with that and um, it could be acute problems chronic problems it could be someone something that someone else has seen and it's not resolved so anything where it's as a, again it's an undifferentiated diagnosis mm. or it could be a follow up it's someone I've previously seen and we, we review patients um, straight across the board so from cradle to grave um so it can be of any age with any uh, with any kind of problem
1: yeah okay
2: the non patient facing time that would be assigned to myself could include um I can work with my other colleagues, some of the learners in practice, so I'll help supervise those. Mm-hmm. So that could be any level of GP trainee with my background from practice nursing, particularly if there's a long-term condition puzzle that needs to be solved, they tend to come to my, to my door. There's always, always plenty of ad- administrative work, as I'm sure you know, within general practice. Mm. So there's letters that will need to be read and understood uh, and actions need to be taken. There's internal tasks that we generate. We work with um, a remote system that's called Ask My GP. So this is a direct patient contact um, and we could communicate solely as long as the patient was happy and it's safe to do so via this almost text message, email message communication Um alongside any investigations we undertake as well obviously every day we have um pathology links that are sent to us so i could spend a small amount of time in the day or a large amount of time of the day, dependent on the day working my way through those yeah. so not just um reading and interpreting my own investigations that i've requested i might make sure that other people if they're not in that those are, are safe to be left for them on take any appropriate urgent action as needed
0: And we kind of know a bit about this because we obviously know what you do. But um, what about the leadership aspect of your advanced clinical practice role? So from a leadership point of view, just in practice, I lead um,
2: the nursing team. So I support the nursing team and we've got health care assistants and a couple of practice nurses and another advanced clinical practitioner who I mentored through her her master's as well. I supported her through that. We also have, it isn't typically um, the nursing team, but she fits really well with us, a GP assistant. And because the role is similar to a healthcare assistant, she um, she works alongside us as well. So she'll often come and ask for tips and advice on certain things, clinical things that she's, um, she's undertaken. I equally would feed into the practice um, with, I take a lead on infection prevention control. I really love complex care and frailty that's my one of my special interests so i also have been um happy to lead on that in practice too so i'll update policies guidance feed into the um partners and the rest of the practice what i would recommend Mm. what i think should happen what's best practice and and advice from their main lead education sessions around certain topics or any guidance that's been updated or highlight any anything where i think we could improve practice and patient care amazing so in, in addition to my day job as well, I also have a couple of other roles um, and I've had a few interesting roles. I, I, I think they're interesting. I think my, my friends who know me know when I say it's interesting, it isn't interesting. It's usually boring and it's usually um, <laughs> you can usually reference it. Uh, I did uh, develop and lead an anticoagulation service locally around anticoagulation stroke prevention, which I found was really, really worthwhile that we could really implement change and bring um, best practice care to our patients closer to home. And that was really quite challenging. So, around from a leadership and management um, stance, out to I would write, I wrote the bid to put that together to um, say it was worth, it was needed, what the st- strategic fit was, how mm. we would deliver it, how we would develop it, what team members I would need, why I would need them, um, employ said team members, look after said team members, and mentor them to make sure that everyone was competent and confident and generally happy in the day job because I really, I think that's really important. I'm also one of the clinical leads for the Greater Manchester Training Hub. So I've been in post as one of the clinical leads at ICS level, so at GM level, um, since 2018.
1: Greater Manchester level, ICS, what's
2: that? It's Integrated Care System. Okay. Um, So at GM level, I'm one of the clinical leads for the Greater Manchester Training Hub, um, which I think is really exciting as a nurse by background, it's traditionally um it would be something that was just GP led, that would just be seen as a senior clinician would always be tagged as something a doctor would need to do. Yeah. So that it's been really um it's been really good and quite inspirational just to say this is what you can do, this is what you can this is you know, this is what you should be aspiring to do to lead others into it, implement change. Yeah. So that we can kind of trailblaze the way through for others. I work with, I have three other colleagues, we cover across Greater Manchester and I also take responsibility for all the, the governance and finance to make sure everything is present and correct, yeah. so it's re, it's really quite involved, it's really quite uh, complicated and stressful but it's really worth, really worthwhile.
1: Wow, it's brilliant.
2: That's why I don't sleep. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was going to say, where do you put all that in? <laughs> How does that fit in a week? <laughs>
0: Um, and then we want to talk a little bit about advanced clinical practitioners specifically in general practice what do you think the pros are of um, having one of those roles within your practice team i think general practice is such a diverse place to be that to get
2: to truly get the benefit you do need a diverse mix this this pond that we fish from needs to be quite multifaceted almost I think we offer a, a different perspective on things because I, I, I didn't go to medical school. I haven't been trained by the medical model. Um, my take on things and how I come to conclusions is different from um, medics. But it's not to so say that it's, it's lesser or better. It's just
0: a different perspective. Yeah. And I think we just add to the richness of, of the team. 100% completely agree. And what about the limitations? Would you say there were any to having an advanced practitioner? I don't think it's a limitation to having one. If I'm honest, I think the limitations
2: are within the role. There's certain things that we just can't do legally, okay. so I, I, we can't sign um, sick notes, med three notes. We can't do that. We can't section patients. Um, there's areas around pregnancy that it's obviously there's a limitation as well. We can um, confirm death, we can verify, but we can't fill in the death certificate because it's still it's still a, a medical diagnosis that obviously we can't make.
1: Mm.
2: And there's certain elements of advanced practice doesn't fall to nurses but some of the other colleagues um, can only prescribe certain uh, groups of drugs so they can't prescribe some controlled drugs. Okay. So it's I don't think it's the limitation per se if, if that makes sense. I think it's the legalities there's a few legalities that we are petitioning against and I I would think in the fullness of time they'll be resolved
1: yeah because yeah the sort of standard of care that you're providing then to have some of the little yeah med threes for example you can prescribe you can see patients that just seems like a, an oversight essentially doesn't it? yeah i think it's um it
2: is one of the hottest topics that is being petitioned uh, yeah. it doesn't seem to be logical really that we can the level of decisions that we can make but then we can't affirm that someone's unwell
1: yeah yeah that yeah it doesn't make sense and then, so um you've mentioned about clinical supervision that you do um but how much clinical supervision do um advanced clinical practitioners require generally, and who does it is it only in training or do you have any supervision afterwards? It's definitely a must within training as it is with anybody
2: yeah, and I think the requirements is dependent on the environment and the person itself just as you'd be familiar with as um as GP training is that everyone's different with different learning needs I would think um during your training, you absolutely need at least an hour with your um, supervisor or your mentor, whichever terminology you want to use, just to kind of consolidate the week and go through cases and anything that's difficult or has triggered a thought for that that week that you can work through. Yeah, and um, there should be allocated time on, on every day. It, your clinical supervision really should punctuate your working week. Yeah, um, and that isn't just for advanced practice; that is for everybody really, so that you've got that safe environment to work in yeah. so you know you've got someone to speak to and equally as a trainee that I suppose unwitting biased almost that the unknown unknown mm. that you might not be aware and um, you, you should be being supervised so that your notes can be reviewed and your cases discussed to make sure that nothing has been missed yeah from a qualified advanced practitioner Just as um, I think I wholeheartedly for every clinician, I think something similar should should continue. I think everybody should have access to someone that they, um, a clinical supervisor, who they can talk difficult cases through. You can generally discuss things with any ethical dilemmas you've had that week. Something really difficult happening. You're unsure the guidelines don't just quite fit. What would you do in this instance? And I I think everybody should have access to that, and there should be a set time in your working week For that to happen.
1: Yeah, 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 you're right. Rather than the informal nipping in that I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Covid yeah, or conversations. Yeah, so vital. that Over, over lunch, just quickly, can kind I of ask you about a patient?
2: It, yeah. it, I think it should be structured in. And the, again, to make reference to the um, roadmap, the first contact practitioner's roadmap, it is clear does clearly um, advocate in the, that there's a, a split between patient and non patient facing time approximately 80 to 20 so that it allows that development and it allows the time for them to teach and support others not just to be taught and supported
0: yeah and that um that kind of formal mentor clinical supervisor role for the trainees would that normally be another advanced clinical practitioner or could it be um someone medical does it have a definition
2: it could it could be either it um the NMC have recently in the last three years, changed the guidelines around some of the supervision and, assess- and assessment. So from a supervision point of view, you just need to be a registered, qualified and competent, registered professional. A- assessment being different for different aspects of um, the training, so uh, things around non-medical prescribing for, to assess to be an assessor for that, you do need to be on the, sit on the same register. Mm. From an advanced practice, because that doesn't have its own register yet... It can be another advanced practitioner who's competent. It can be um, it can be a doctor, it can be a medic.
0: Okay, fab. So it's not set in stone that it has to be another advanced clinical practitioner. And once they're qualified, can um, the advanced practitioners supervise other roles? Absolutely, but it, it's once they've gained their own confidence and competence around that.
2: It typically, um, it's it is it isn't, it isn't written anywhere, but it's anecdotally we'd say about two years. Yeah. So, once you're two years in, you've passed that preceptorship period, you're quite st- settled in your own job and confident and comfy in your own work.
1: Lovely. Um, you mentioned about professional registration there. So, did you say at the moment, is there a, a registration body or how does it work with advanced clinical practice? So, at the moment,
2: Health Education England are working on the advanced practice faculty, which will. Um, that would be a register held by, by HEE for any advanced practitioner. So irrespective of registration background, so whether you're a physio, whether you're HCP or nursing, for example, mm. once you've reached that level of um, practice, you would apply to be on that register. Okay, And there'd be
0: certain criteria and stipulations that you'd need to meet to say, I am an advanced clinical practitioner. Grand. So when someone does become an advanced clinical practitioner, do they keep on doing the kind of appraisal kind of stuff that's required for their background or do they have to do something else on top for the advanced practice at the moment because the advanced
2: practice register isn't in place you still continue with whatever your professional body recommends that's the
0: that should continue fine I just thought that was, yeah, that came to my head. I was like, oh, I'm I'm guessing that because you're kind of straddling two stools almost. I was just going to ask, do you get supported? So say like
1: you're in practice and you're interested, do you get support and time away from practice and funding to, to do advanced clinical practice or is it just case by case basis? it's typically case by case because it needs to be any development would need
2: to fit the needs of the practice usually mm. so you need to fit in with what the practice the business wants yeah and um, from a support mechanism there's funding available to do the advanced practice apprenticeship as it is now and there's also some kind of financial support and resource there which would help fund costs yeah. and wages
1: yeah so there's pots in places yeah. but yeah it depends on where you are working. it depends on your area and it depends on where you are working. yeah yeah um so what are your um what would you like listeners to take away from the chat today i think ever
2: any any potential advanced practitioners advanced clinical practitioners absolutely go for it it's a it's it's a fantastic opportunity and it can be really daunting and it can be really stressful but it is so worth it yeah. Um it it, it can it makes you really think about every single thing that you do and it's so fulfilling and it makes you a really truly autonomous practitioner i think i would just say go for it
0: (laughs) it's worth the effort
1: yeah perfect thank you very much sam that was
0: amazing yeah thank you yeah so a big thank you to sam for her time today talking to us all about um, advanced clinical practitioners what did you take away sarah
1: Yeah, so we've known Sam for a while, but we've not actually asked her this level of detail about her work and and about advanced clinical practitioners. And I think the thing that struck me was how clear that information was about the definition. So it's an advanced level of practice and then all the other roles within it that can reach that level.
0: Um, so I think that's made it much clearer in my head about where it sits. Yeah definitely um, and I think as well her going through the four pillars was really um, useful to kind of understand that it, it, it's a role that isn't just about um, clinical practice, it's not just about patient facing, the fact that there is that leadership research education element to it and you can kind of see that in my head it helps me to put the um the role on to people that i know and see how it's different to um say a specialist nurse or say um a physio that's very advanced it, it helps me understand how the roles are different and how an advanced clinical practitioner is um is advanced in their yeah. practice
1: yeah the scope for like she's her examples of what she's done with her career that if you um you know if you if you're so inclined that you can go into commissioning and and Mm. actually setting up services and yeah loads of the leadership side of things that are you know the limits are endless essentially so I thought that was really interesting that you do have a broader perspective you're coming at things from a different angle and yeah she's worked in practice she's got that common sense and knowing how general practice works and having seen patients for all of her career and whereas we're sort of coming at it from medical school of all very dry and academic and you know coming in later to see and and then then getting the understanding of how it works
0: yeah completely agree that what she said about how um it's it's the diversity that you get from having advanced um, practitioners within general practice it's exactly what you said it's everyone's got this different background it isn't just that medical model it's not just the medical school and that's definitely going to improve patient care isn't it
1: yeah absolutely yeah Lovely. So thank you very much again, Sam, and thank you to everyone for listening. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can. You know the usual routes, I'm sure. Um you can just follow links or um share us with your friends. <laughs> yes.
0: We do love uh we love hearing from everybody. Um yeah. we love that the, the news of us is spreading far and wide. It's always mm-hmm. surprising where people are listening from and um what role they have. And if you'd like to leave us a review, um a public review, then that would be great on iTunes. Um but yeah, thank you to all of you for listening till next time on primary care knowledge boost
1: this podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of gp excellence wiganborough ccg greater manchester training hub and the gp fellowship program as well as
0: greater manchester health and social care partnership just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public
1: They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2021. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over
0: time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewees' opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the
1: episode.